Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Jill Harding, and you're listening to I've Got a Feeling, the podcast where we discuss what grounds us, what makes us feel alive, what fuels our hearts, and ultimately what brings us each to flourishing. On this podcast, I have conversations with friends I've known for ages, people I've only just met, and people who inspire me by how they demonstrate flourishing, at least from my vantage point. The guests on this show are from a wide variety of backgrounds, belief systems, and life experiences, and I hope that from these interviews, you gain a sense of the breadth of unique examples of what flourishing can look like, and take these ideas as inspiration to discover how you might create wellness and flourishing in your own life. Well, today we have episode nine of I've Got a Feeling podcast for you, and today my guest is licensed counselor Gina Roth. Gina is a therapist that's licensed in Missouri and Illinois, and she primarily works with a variety of complex traumas, including spiritual abuse recovery and betrayal trauma, which we talk about both quite a lot in this episode today. Uh, She also works with people that are coming out of coercive spaces and destructive groups. So she is very well prepared to talk about this topic, and we spend most of the session talking about what it looks like to seek flourishing after being in a toxic faith situation. I really enjoyed speaking with her today and I hope you enjoy the conversation and I will include information about Gina on the notes below this episode in case you wanna check more out about her. Welcome to I've Got a Feeling. Okay, welcome back to I've Got a Feeling. And today, as I mentioned, we have my new friend and fellow therapist, Gina Roth. I'm very excited to have you, Gina. I always, I felt like I had to snag you before you moved away from the city and yeah, yeah. <laughs> have a little chat because we have talked, the few times we've talked, I feel like it's revolved around different angles and aspects of flourishing. That wasn't why we were talking, but I first met you as a result of your um, being invited to to present at a conference and your session about spiritual abuse was, first of all, very well attended because I think many of us have aspects of our spirituality that can relate to that topic. But something that struck me in the middle of that conversation that as you were presenting was the focus on how can flourishing come from a season that has felt so damaging. And I know you have a lot of professional experience in that area and also some personal experience. And I guess just to start, I'm wondering, do you feel like you in all the the things changing in life right now are in a season where you're connected to your own flourishing? Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, thinking about all those different aspects of flourishing, um, I would say that right now, I am kind of on the edge. I'm, I'm I feel really busy. I yeah. feel really like in tune with a lot of the things that are going to take me in a good direction. Um, but I'm like, am I going to make it? You know, it's like this. Can I can I quite get past that point where um, I just feel like I'm failing at everything mm. um, into that space where I can actually succeed and do really well? And I think I'm on the edge of it, but it's that risk piece that is feeling big to me right now. So yeah, I do work with a lot of spiritual abuse recovery. Um, and I got into that work because I was going through my own 
process with spiritual abuse recovery and realized that there just were not a lot of resources out there. Uh, This was about eight years ago now, and I remember scouring the web, trying to find different books and articles, and, and I was trying to describe what we were going through in terms of spiritual abuse recovery and just noticing how rejected that terminology was. Mm. And I think it was just so disorienting and it, it really tanked me and my husband. And we, we tried to figure out what was happening and couldn't get a feel for where to go from there. Is that like such a, the lack of almost definition created a sense of isolation? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we didn't know what it was called. We didn't know how to describe what we were going through. People didn't believe us if we did, you know, and so there was just this like overall sense of gaslighting, like what we were going through wasn't real. And that was so discouraging. And I would say that that was kind of the moment where once I started to get some of that language, I started to get some experience with other people who could help me understand my experience or tap into some of their own experiences to connect back with me. That was a turning point in terms of my own flourishing. I could then figure out um, more conceptually what was going on in me. When you look at some of the uh, research or also just personal experiences you've had with people who have been in situations like that, what are some of the common blockers? What are some of the primary weights, I guess, that you see people carrying? Because I think that that description you just gave applies to so many things in that when you when you don't have a place to plant your feet in what you're experiencing, mm-hmm. it you feel so alone and you mm-hmm. feel like it's very difficult to make sense of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I lost my community. Mm. So getting pushed out of a church, kicked out of a church, blowing up the church system that I was in, however we (laughs) want to describe that, um, really I lost what was community and family. I missed out on that whole aspect of social flourishing because my people were gone. Yeah. You know, and I, I couldn't, it was hard to know, like, what do I, what do I do to get that back? Or is there something else out there that I can get to? Um, I had a lot of anxiety there. For sure. Trying to figure out what to, how to describe my experiences. I think the vocabulary piece is a big part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's one thing that I see professionally, like with people who come into my office. I'm no longer in those initial stages of spiritual abuse recovery, but seeing people come in and seeing how disoriented they are from themselves Mm -hmm. and seeing that kind of internal gaslighting that they've been groomed to do along the way and then seeing how that impacts their sense of connection. They are isolated. They are disconnected. And when we can start to build in some vocabulary, some language for them to narrate their story again, it really does restore self-confidence. It really does connect them to other people. And they start to see that they're not alone. Well, and I imagine, you know, I know having talked to you that some of the process of leaving was kind of questioning power, right? And and that's not always the case, but I think that's often the case with spiritual abuse is like be stopping buying everything hook line and sinker and starting to to question Mm -hmm. the purpose of some of what's occurring and in thinking about the community aspect 
when people are so bought into something, whether it's toxic or not, when you start to push against it, even if they're just also participants, they're going to be alienated too, because maybe it brings up fear for them. And so you do the, the identification that you've had with them for so long kind of disappears and dissipates, not like from your side of the viewpoint, you're like, no, we could still have a relationship, right? I'm on the other side and it's okay for me to question and you not. Mm -hmm. I wanted there to be, (laughs) I wanted there to be crossover. I wanted to keep, I remember working with my own therapist at the time and talking about this idea of relationship equity, right? Is there enough relationship equity here for me to continue with this person in friendship Mm. beyond this this break between me and the church. And so for us, it was with a lot of our people were within the church. We were coming back as missionaries. And so there's a lot of just social dynamics with that in terms of support team and different, different things like that. But I remember having lunch with a couple people after we left, after we left. And honestly, we went into hiding because our situation was just really Mm. kind of crazy. I was pregnant at the time. We almost lost that pregnancy twice during it. And my doctors and counselors were all advising complete rest and like trying to get away to safety. So we had to go in hiding because the the main pastor and his wife were harassing us. They would show up places. um, We were just trying to protect ourselves and they would kind of put themselves in our space unnecessarily. And so a a lot of what we were doing was trying to get safety in terms of community and, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't safe. So trying to figure out, could these relationships that, I mean, these people were like my aunts and uncles. Um, My mom literally was part of the church still. And Mm. I had an uncle still involved in the church and it was like, can we keep these relationships after we leave? And I mean, that's part of why I didn't leave for so long is that yeah. these are my people, right? I want to risk. Yeah. And I kept telling myself I was going to make things change or I was going to be part of the solution or all of these things that I realize now are, are enabling of a system in some ways, or um, they're parts of that toxic system from a different side. Um, but yeah, I remember having lunch with some people and kind of getting to that point where I was starting to tell my perspective of what had happened and just seeing the shutdown in their face of this is not going to work. This is, this relationship's not going to continue, not because I don't want it to, but because they can't acknowledge that what I went through was real. And And so so just immediately withdrew. Immediately. Well, and just the validation. I mean, there was no validation there. They were no longer meeting me as a person in that space because they couldn't change their own perspective on the church or they would have to leave too. Yeah. And so I think it just, it, it does like butt up against the church versus the relationships, which one's going to win. And I think it does depend on how toxic the church system or the faith system is. Yeah. And people play roles in those systems. And I don't, I don't despise people who stayed, but I do feel sorry for them that they were stuck in that system. It feels like this is really applicable too to all kinds of abuse situations where mm-hmm. there are often people that f- for by choice or by circumstance circumstance mm-hmm. like need to remain blind, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they choose to turn a blind eye or maybe they can't see it. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I and, was there. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I was in that enabler role for so long. Um, I remember when people who had left the system before us kind of cut off ties with us. I was like, what did I do wrong? Like, how did I, you know, I was, I was taking it personally. I didn't understand the bigger system. So I think at the same time, I had some grace, some kindness for people who were still stuck in the system. Like I felt sorry for them Yeah. because they didn't have, well, for one, they didn't have the thing pushing them out, <laughs> but, which is a good thing. But they did have, they had enough of a buffer that they weren't feeling it persistently. Yeah. And I don't know that that was a good thing, right? Right. I know it wasn't a good thing for me because, I mean, my husband was ready to leave years before I was ready to leave. And just realizing that I would have stayed because of the betrayal bonds. I would have stayed because we were trauma bonded together. We had gone through some really awful stuff within this church and a lot of people had left and there is a trauma bond there. Um, is that, what is, how would you describe what betrayal bond means? Is yeah. it the same as a trauma bond? I kind of use them interchangeably. So Patrick Carnes has a really good book called The Betrayal Bond and in it he has a, an assessment where there are eight different types of trauma response. And so it's actually really helpful because trauma responses can look really different. So you can have somebody repeating trauma. You can have somebody have more classic PTSD symptoms. Um, And betrayal bonding or trauma bonding is one of those types of response. Mm. And so really the the emphasis behind betrayal bonding is that you feel drawn to that thing that hurt you. So whether that's Stockholm syndrome or um, sort of the the codependency that you can see in domestic abuse or or church abuse, spiritual abuse. Yeah. There's like this pull back to that thing that hurt you. Whether that's gaslighting yourself or other people gaslighting you, you you still feel connected and you want to keep that space. You want to go back to it. Um, and you have to tell yourself all sorts of things to make that work. Mm-hmm. right? And I think that's where it, it has been really tricky to work on that, but getting that language and knowing that that's a normal process that people go through was super validating to me. I really, I mean, I really, what, first of all, I love his book. I think it's just an excellent book. And, um, he, in the updated version, they even address like me too. And some Mm. of the other like society things that have happened in terms of abuses, systemic abuses. And I just think he, I think it's a great, great book. But also just helping people to understand that piece where you feel pulled back. You feel like that is described as loyalty right? or a beneficial thing or you're not giving up on the system or you're working to make it better. Um, and you can hear that kind of used as an opposite of cancel culture, right? Yes. Of you don't want to just cut off immediately, right? right? But sometimes it's still really not safe. Yeah. And so there's a lot of wisdom that goes into when do I cut off and when do I stay in and, and all that. And I'm not, I don't want to oversimplify that because it's very much on a case by case basis. And I've walked with many clients through that and we do not predict or prescribe outcomes for that for sure. Um, but I've seen it go both ways. Yeah. You know, what do you think is the beginning of noticing? I'm just thinking about like this idea that when you can't see it, when you're in it yourself, right? Or looking back, I guess, noticing like that was a journey that I had to go through to become aware 
to recognize what I was willing to do or what I needed to do to move through that situation, what my choices were. What do you think are some of the beginning stages of becoming aware is that, I don't even know if that's the question I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I, I think I get what you're saying though. Like, I I know that for me, I had to let go. I had to, to let go of that system that had given me so much identity and it was a huge risk mm. being able to say, I'm going to step away from this thing that I've known. I mean, I was in that church since birth. Like I yeah. literally, they were my family. Generations of my church had been in, or of my family had been in that church. And so letting go of that thing and saying my flourishing, my connection to myself, my spiritual growth, my emotional growth, my psychological growth, my mental growth, even my physical growth, in some ways, because I was dealing with a lot of health problems at that mm. time. Like all of those things were right now still being massively impacted by the toxic faith system I was in. So part of it was I'm recognizing the impact. What then should I do about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in retrospect, I wish I had seen it sooner, but I don't know that I could have. Yeah. Right. Like I saw it when it hit that critical mass for me. Mm -hmm. And for me, that point was knowing these things that I thought I could help change, I had no power over. Yeah. They, there was no way for me to impact that system in the ways I had hoped or expected to. Do you think that's very commonly true? Because I think it is very standard for people to think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll be part of the solution, I'll change it from the inside. And I imagine much less frequently then it works. That doesn't work. Do you think it ever works? <laughs> Do you think it ever can be helpful the to stay? The cynical side of me says no. Um, it's funny. My husband is way more off to that end than I am. He's like, just burn it all down. Like, it's mm. just not. He doesn't believe that the system can ever be redeemed. Like, there's just so much wrong there. Mm. I don't know. There's part of me that wants to believe there's still hope. But are you talking about like evangelicalism uh, or the organized church? Gosh, I don't know. Um, for me, it's it's more of an on, on an individual church level mm. and then spreading to evangelicalism mm -hmm. within a broader category. I don't know about I don't know. I still have this tension with the church. Like I want the church to be a safe place for people. And I want there to be in contrast to the toxic faith systems. I so often work with, I want for there to be healthy church systems, healthy faith systems. Mm -hmm. And I think there's space for that. I just don't see it very often. Yeah. And I have seen it in a couple places here in St. Louis where I live. And um, that's been really refreshing. I'm still really tentative <laughs> to trust that that system is really okay. Yeah. Um, I'm watching, I'm, I'm waiting for those red flags. I'm sort of like dipping my toe in and not really fully able to commit fully. Um, but it is good. I think even, even those little times where a church is able to build trust or earn some of my trust from them like it is good like I yeah. want to believe that the church could be someplace safe like I want to believe that that community could be healthy yeah but a lot of that 
determination might come from, I guess, really assessing what the level of toxicity is in a space, right? Because as you were saying with the, the change it from the inside or the burn it all down, like some, especially individual churches, like, gosh, it would take a huge reckoning Mm-hmm. for something to be mm-hmm. predominantly healthy there because mm-hmm. of the systems that have been in place mm-hmm. for so long. Yeah. And I think it, it would require those people who are in those categories. So Arterburn and Felton in their book, Toxic Faith, talk about the five roles people play mm-hmm. in, in toxic faith systems. And so that persecutor, those co-conspirators, the enablers, the victims, and then the outcasts. So for toxic faith to be really, really challenged, the co-conspirators have to say, we're not going to do this anymore. And the enablers have to say, we're not going to do this either. We're going to advocate. We're going to use our power here to advocate for healthy systems. But so often in those roles, I see passive people, you know, who aren't willing to like, it's like, it's good enough. Just don't mess with anything, you know, and it's not for the victims. Right. Right. So those people who are being hurt by the system are not, they're not okay. And they can't do it on their own. They need the entire system to actually hold that persecutor to account Mm -hmm. and push them out and give them true accountability and to be proactive in that. Like you can't just respond. No. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just respond to that or it's not going to, you're just never going to have the same impact. Yeah. Looking at that, I think from, inside of it I can't imagine the I mean I can't imagine but I think it's got to be so individual I can't imagine sometimes like the bravery that you intentionally have to muster to imagine what actions come next yeah to to look at the impacts that you're experiencing and think these are worth honoring enough mm-hmm that I'm willing to risk a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. I'm sure when you began to push back or move away or whatever that specifically looked like, I'm sure you knew loss could happen, risk was there, but I, but how could you know the extent of what that might look like? Right. Right. And, and that was where... So we were in the system. So I think I mentioned before we were missionaries and we came back. We were kind of on a home assignment. Mm -hmm. I was in, actually, I was on medical leave at the time for some stuff I was going through. Um, But there was this whole idea of the listen to me, right? I have some power here in this church. People know who I am. I I mean, I'm not a pastor. I'm not on staff in the same way. So I'm kind of like maybe in a parallel type of power position, but but they should listen to me, right? And I can do something. I can say something here. And that's where I was so confused because when I did say something and then was shot down, I was like, wait a second, what do you mean? Then they would start to gaslight me and say what I was experiencing wasn't real or no, that's not spiritual abuse. Spiritual <laughs> abuse looks like this. And I'm like, actually, like, I don't think you get to tell me what, my experience was and um, so much of of that was it was disorienting but I also had enough power that I was able to say no I don't think you get to do that Uh, I was actually in grad school at the time and so a lot of my professors I remember meeting with so many of them and just being like what is this Mm. right what is abuse in the church what does this look like and 
just having the validation of no that's that's a power abuse Mm. or that's the way you're describing this this is emotional abuse or this is psychological abuse Mm. and um just having that validation so often i think people in those roles they don't have people to check the facts with they don't have those resources to go to Um, A lot of the work I do in early spiritual abuse recovery is just listening and validating and just letting myself respond naturally to the injustices that are happening. And people see that reflected. And I mean, I've had clients be like, you know, when you responded like, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. it, it triggered something in me because I didn't realize this was actually a big deal. Mm. And so I'm not putting anything on that. I'm just letting myself respond and my nervous system respond to what my clients are bringing in. And in that process, they're like, wow, this is real. This is a big deal. And I do feel this way. They're getting to set aside all the times that they've been told it's not a big deal. Right. They're saying, wait, can I sit this down and actually lean into your response because it feels truer. Right. And then that resonates with their gut. Yeah. And that starts us down this this line of thinking where they start to pick up their own cues. Again, their emotional cues, their physical cues, their psychological cues. All of these things that are saying, hey, something's not right here. I don't know what, but something's not right. Well, people have gaslit them for so long and they've been taught to gaslight themselves for so long yeah that they've ignored those cues so i want to help them become attached back to themselves right that's like one of my treatment goals so if we think about spiritual abuse as a distortion of that relationship with others relationship with self and relationship with god so the the intrapersonal the social and then the spiritual Mm -hmm. sort of levels we're working on all of those different planes at the same time. Yeah. But a lot of is it a lot of it is starting to understand themselves and their own cues first because then they can connect better with other people if they know how they feel in relationship and they can connect better spiritually if they can read their own body cues again. Um, so a lot of it is is just reorienting and re yeah, re-narrating what happened and helping them get in touch with themselves again. I think that's such important delineation too. One of the things that for, for me, like being in your seminar, I lost it (laughs) a little bit, which (laughs) I didn't expect. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, it was, it was very helpful, but I, I did not expect to have an emotional response. I expected to go and feel more equipped to walk into these spaces that I cared about Mm. caring for people in these moments that I see happening all the time. And I have gone through some, what I previously would have described as just like, oh, I have a kind of a complicated church history. Mm. And in listening to the seminar that you gave, I think that delineation smacked me up the side of the head because what I realized was I was downplaying the impact on that because Mm -hmm. I actually still felt like my spiritual, Mm -hmm. I can't remember what word you use, but like I still trusted Mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like my relationship with God Mm -hmm. was impacted at all, but I had all of this emotional hurt and impact from the social aspect Mm -hmm. and the a little bit 
the inter intrapersonal, like a little bit what was me mm-hmm. trusting myself or not, but a lot of it due to like that power dynamic and the trust within the church. And I think what you're describing too is that helping helping each person that's going through this to pull those three things apart and deal with them individually is such a first step because yeah. when it's all wrapped up together, mm-hmm. it kind of leans into what we were talking about before. Where do we plant our feet? How right. do we make sense of even what happened? And I would say that was the beginning of my brain beginning to like make sense and categorize and figure out where my emotions were. Yeah. What actually impacted me versus what was just tricky versus what still felt safe Yeah. versus here are the places I can lean into still, even though the rest of it doesn't feel great. No, that's, that's so good. Like just thinking about, so the conference was on trauma in the church and, mm-hmm. um, my particular session was, I was kind of profiling the survivor of spiritual abuse Right, kind of going yeah. through some of those stories, what that looks like clinically, and also what that's looked like in my own story, like pulling pieces from my own experience, which honestly is a lot of how I've experienced this is just through empathy and yeah. just through my own personal journey of, yeah, this this part surprises me, but we do need to include it because it's here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think going through the profile of the survivor is sometimes helpful because people don't recognize that they've been through abuses. Yeah. I mean, you think about domestic violence victims, like they don't often yeah. recognize what they're going through is abuse until they're able to zoom out a little bit. Yeah. And so that's what I was hoping to do is like zoom out with people so they can see what this looks like on paper. Um, and then knowing that there's an aspect of spiritual abuse in any kind of abuse. So even if it's not mainly that power abuse within the church or somebody's not saying God hates you or, you know, something direct that you're like, yeah, that pinpoint that, that is definitely spiritual abuse. But when, when there's coercive behavior in general, that can distort our perception of who God is. When there's, um, when there's emotional or manipulation in general, that distorts how we connect with other people. So all of those things are aspects of it and components of it. And all it takes is for our our brain, who which likes to make those connections, to start to connect. Oh, this happened in the church. This must be what God is like. Yeah. Right. And so teasing those things apart is just so important, because we. One, I think once we get some footing in one area, it can help us get footing in the others also. Yeah. And I think about you know there's this, what I would call maybe a movement, towards deconstruction Mm. in America, faith deconstruction, maybe specifically in the last like eight to 10 years, five to 10 years. And, um, I've always been a little caught up short by how significant or how like thorough it is what people leave behind. Because Mm -hmm. for me, it's so, so nuanced. Right. Mm -hmm. And thinking about like, you know, I, I just see TikToks and stories and posts and whatever about the ending of someone's spirituality period mm-hmm. because of the experiences they've had in in spiritual abuse and in toxic places in the church. And I wonder, I think, I'm sure that that is very accurate and honoring to some people's experiences, but I wonder 
what I wonder if there's a percentage of people too that like if they had been given the language to pull these three areas mm. apart, yeah, would there remain pieces of their spirituality while they still need to throw parts of it away, right? Because right. for me, I re- I would call what I've done deconstruction, but I still consider myself very spiritual. Mm. Like I'm a Christian. These are things that are labels I still feel comfortable attributing to myself, but the way that I involve myself in the church is so different than my whole lifetime. Yeah. And, and deconstruction is such a dirty word in the church. Yeah. The church is very scared of deconstruction and I don't think it needs to be. No. I think that actually makes it worse because I know when I was doing something of a deconstruction process to me, I mean, as the church looking at deconstruction, you could think of that as pruning, or you could think of that as a refining right. process. Um, I think that's a much healthier way to think about deconstruction. What happens is that when somebody is deconstructing, they're pulling those pieces apart, and then people in the church get scared, mm-hmm. right? And instead of holding space for people to ask questions and to fine tune things and to um, and to understand maybe there is a part of their faith journey that was off or that is more culturally impacted than biblically impacted or whatever that delineation is, instead of holding space for those people, they actually end up pushing them away because they come down and say, it has to be this way. Well, then that authoritarianism and coercion and manipulation, like all that comes back. And now you've added a secondary spiritual abuse on top of whatever the original hurt was. Right. So I don't, I mean, I do not lay out next steps for anybody who comes through my office um, or who is my friend and has talked about this process with me individually. I don't have an agenda to get them back in church or to save them. I feel like if we can hold space for people and God is as big as I think he is, he's going to figure that out. (laughs) I don't have to be the one doing it, but I can hold space for someone to be able to grieve and process the ways that spirituality or church or relationships with other Christians have not been healthy. Yeah. Right. And when we grieve those things together, we get to that space eventually where somebody can integrate that into their story in a different way. And indeed like pushing back on or gaslighting someone's experiences in those areas. um, It really attributes something to God that isn't his or vice versa um, someone scared to address mm-hmm. the concerns in these other areas. Like if someone is saying, here are things that have hurt me mm-hmm. and you're hearing, I'm specifically, um, to use like Christianese language, like I'm blaspheming God by uh-huh. saying, right. Like if that's what you're hearing when I'm saying I'm hurt, mm-hmm. that just like knocks your my feet out right. from under me because I'm again not being believed I'm being gaslit right you're not hearing the experience I'm trying to share with you mm-hmm. well and it, it I think that's a that's an issue with American evangelicalism is because we are so black and white mm. everything has to be either good or bad all or nothing you know this this kind of distorted thinking where everything is polarized like we need to hold space for the gray. We need yeah. to say we don't have all the answers and be okay with that and let there be process. I think if we as a as a community were more focused on process than product, yeah. I think it would change the way we experience 
community and experience church. Yeah. Um, I, it's kind of funny. I have a, my oldest daughter is 18 and um, we have a lot of conversations at home and I used to be somebody who really wanted to know the right answer mm-hmm. <laughs> and like have this all set out. I know less now than I thought I knew <laughs> years ago. Um, but I think there's something just so normal and developmental about saying, I need to figure this out and I need safe place to talk about these questions that are hard, that feel like they're off limits yeah. in the church. Or if you say those things out loud, you're going to be judged or condemned or put on a list, you know, some right. sort of watch list. Of, are you really a Christian? Who's? Why are we judging other people's spirituality like that? I know. Like, it just does not make sense. And so, I don't know. I just, I like communities that give space for those conversations and that, I don't know, just allow the humanness mm-hmm. of questions and, and unsure outcomes and and I think that's actually despite what people say so a lot of people will tell me they're afraid that they're going to be they're going to deconstruct to the point where they're not a Christian at all or they're going to move away from the church at all I think if we have those safe spaces they're more likely to not be turned off by the church right away yeah right and so having spaces like that maybe people see that the church is okay like the church is interested in process not product yeah you know, I think there's just so much developmentally that we we just rush past. Yeah, it's like we need to be able to ask questions mm-hmm. and not just and, memorize. And, not rote as, and honestly, answers. not even as part of a journey, but mm-hmm. as the sub like the substance of spirituality is having questions mm-hmm. and being allowed to ask them, right? Like, that's not like, well, you can have questions now, but, like, you really need to get to your surety (laughs) later, right? Like, your sureness needs to come in or else we're we're not sure about you. What if I never have that surety about Right. Because so things. That's not something that... I I think it's maybe manufactured in many instances, but I know some people experience that. Yeah, I think it's artificial. I think there are some things that I am pretty sure about, but I don't know that there's as many as I thought. Yeah. You know, I have this painting in my office. I'm not sure if it's a painting or a photo, actually. But it's it's in black and white. And I I love that painting. Over, over time, it has reminded me that there's actually probably in that painting no true black or no true white in it mm. anywhere. And what I love about that is that you still get to see texture. You still get to see... Um, shape and design and layers, you know, things that are lighter and things that are darker, but you don't have that true black or white any, anywhere. Yeah. Is that okay? Is it okay for it to be black enough or white enough um, or true enough, mm-hmm. right? Like this is what I believe right now. And I also believe that I might learn something different that will change my perspective on it. Yeah. When you are thinking about becoming more aware of what choices you're willing to make to start honoring Mm. some of the impact of that. Mm. You start to create space. You start to like um, really honor that. Maybe you stop going to the church, whatever it is. Mm. What are some of the first for you? What are some of the first things that you began to identify as choices that would bring about more wellness? Mm holistically right like not not just okay I'm I have to 
leave this church right now for my wellness. That's, that's a big choice, right? But like even in the aftermath of some of the bigger decisions, how do you start to care for yourself? How do you start to maybe not even, maybe flourishing is too big of a word. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's more generally just kind of self-care choices, but like, how do you start Maybe it's just taking a step. (laughs) Yeah. One step at a time. Yeah. I think for me, it was rewiring some of those systems I had in my mind, right? Of what success looked like, Mm. of what safety looked like, and what expectations I had of myself. Like, I questioned everything. Do I have to go to a church? Do I have to go every week to a church? And, you know, just sort of deconstructing the way I use deconstruction is to say, I mean, you can either, when you remodel a house, you can do it one room at a time, or you can bulldoze the whole thing and rebuild it. Um, for me, mine went more kind of room by room. And what I did was, okay. So one example of deconstruction that I went through was like, I used to go to church religiously every week I needed to be at church. Um, I didn't even understand why, except for that I felt like I was okay with God when I would go to church regularly. So it wasn't compulsory. It was like a spiritual choice. Um, I think it was compulsory. Okay. <laughs> to be fair. Um, it was a should. It okay. was absolutely a should. I should go to church. Um, I will be more spiritual if I do go to church. Um, I deconstructed that. And for a while, I did not go to church every week. And when I did go to church, we kind of went to different places, kind of trying different, different things. And then when I reconstructed that, eventually I got to the point where I was noticing changes in myself because I was not in a community Hmm. and they didn't know me and I didn't know them. Like I noticed things that I, that made me want to be in a community, not in the same hyper-religious way as I was before, but in a connected to people who know me, who understand my story, and who who care about me, who I could call on if I needed help. And so I needed to invest enough in a church community that I could kind of develop that slowly, not, not throwing myself into the deep end like I had previously with other churches, which, I mean, is its own sense of vulnerability and ingratiation. So, but not that way, but in a way that I was building relationships genuinely. And, and that to me was how I reconstructed. I don't go to church because I have to, I go to church because it's good for me. Mm -hmm. And because I, I like the way I feel when I am at least somewhat connected to a, a body of of believers. Not everybody gets to that point mm-hmm. and not everybody can find a church system or a, a place that feels safe enough for mm-hmm. that. So it, it's very much on an individual basis, but that's what my process looked like. And I do find it difficult to hold space for faith coming out of spiritual abuse. And I think the church and church people can make it really difficult yeah. on me and people like me because they're not always safe and they don't always understand those things that are not safe about them. Yeah. Right. They don't know what, what they're doing that's actually pushing people away and they're not willing to listen. I've confronted people in church systems and they don't listen. I tell them that this is my specialty and I, and I do actually know what I'm talking about in this area and they don't listen to me. Yeah. And churches actually hire you to tell them 
those things. They could. They they should. <laughs> or, or some should have, again. Maybe. Um, yeah, some have in the past. Um, I've actually done some consultations, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm impressed with the church system that will call me in to do that. Yeah. Right. That to me is something I love doing because if they're going to get on the front end of something and try to make safe spaces for people, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, I've spent a lot of time confronting systems that aren't ready to change and don't value what I have to say, but I just kind of move on. Yeah. It's not worth my, it's not worth my time anymore to, to sit and to keep trying to convince people who, who don't really want to know. Mm-hmm. Cause that place isn't for you. Yeah. And it's just not a good use of time and energy. <laughs> right. So, so, um, as you talk about the choice to, to go room by room mm-hmm. and changing some of those mindsets and understandings, was that just creating space for your mind to like process in its own pace? Was it seeking out like materials that would help you think through other mindsets? Was it conversations? Like what did that? Sometimes it was resources. Sometimes there would be something I'd hear or listen to in a podcast or read in a book, and that would kind of take me down a rabbit hole. Mm. Other times it was just all I could handle at the moment, right? There, um, I finished grad school. I got into my own private practice. Like there's just a lot going on in life. Um, my girls are 10 years apart. And so just being in stages of life. Yeah. You know, I, there's limits to what I can do. And that was one of the first things I figured out is there, it's okay to have limits, right? That it's okay to have my own boundaries and to not be able to do everything all at once. I don't often, (laughs) I don't always follow my own limits sometimes. (laughs) Um, I am a very high functioning, stressed out person, but, um, but learning that I can and that it's okay to have those limits makes it then a choice if I choose to go over those limits or if I choose to say, you know, for this season or for this amount of time, I can get through this. Um, Yeah. That's part of how moving out of the area has worked. So we we set a time limit on it. Like we will move. So my husband's been commuting back and forth to one of his job, to his job that he really loves. I mean, it really is kind of a dream job Mm. opportunity. And so, but it's several hours away, right? It's several hours away. (laughs) And so he has, he has a little studio apartment there that he would, go to and stay a few days and then he'd be back on weekends. But, and that was possible because it was a limited time, mm-hmm. right? It was a season. It's a, and this season is coming to an end. And I don't think this season, it's like a long winter that we're like ready to be done with. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be moving to get us all back together again, but it, it worked for a time and we were able to consciously make that choice. We weren't backed into a corner where we had to, but it gave us the space to say, we want to make sure your job is working the way we think it's going to before we uproot the rest of our family in this way. And so there was intentionality behind it. And I don't recommend it longer. Well, I don't even recommend it for a year for people like that. It's hard. It's hard to go back and forth, but it was doable for a time. Yeah. Right. And so I know that I can allocate these extra resources to this for a time. I can't do it indefinitely and I can't do it long term, but there are, there are ways that I can put my physical, emotional scheduling <laughs> boundaries on hold for a little bit in order to get something else that I value as much or more. Well, and I think that, I don't know if this is specifically what you're saying, but it just reminds me that you really can't put 
a time frame on healing, right? Like, I think we can very often pressure ourselves to say, like, I'm not getting through that. I mean, I, I used to work in hospice and grieving family would talk mm-hmm. to me about this all the time. Well, it's been six months. Like, why am I not yeah. feeling better? It's yeah. been a year. Why am I not feeling better? And I think any kind of healing, when we start to put expectations to what that might look like, it really doesn't make room for letting the process happen as it needs to happen yeah. and, and paying attention to like what is happening inside yeah. of us. Yeah. I have... Yes, both that grief process is so important in spiritual abuse recovery and also just with other clients, different things come up, um, different crises in families, you know, a parent dies, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. When those things come up, the language I like to use is the idea of like riding a wave, Mm -hmm. right? That helping people understand what it is to surf grief, right? Mm -hmm. To just stay on top of the, the curve, just to stay to stay in it, to stay observant, to not push it down, to not expect anything, but just be flexible with whatever's going to come your way. And I think in that, when we can do that successfully, <laughs> I think it does, I mean, it, it does resolve on yeah. its own. And um, I, I, I'll i draw out like a curve, like a, you know, the, what people expect grief to yes. look like this yep. linear stages of grief sort of idea the five and stages then, of grief right and then what it actually looks like which is just this big um this big mess this big jumble of, like a tangled ball of yarn yeah line. that kind of thing yeah. and it's like we have to pull these out one at a time mm-hmm. and it yes it does happen over time but it's like a everything's overlapping and all at once and so really just it's it's about observing it's about staying connected to yourself in the process and it's going to look different for everybody. So yeah. I, we can't prescribe it. We just have to go. Yeah. We just have to keep taking one step and keep keep walking. I'm going to take one moment to say what my soapbox is, which is that having worked in hospice for a long time, um, a lot of people are familiar with the quote-unquote five stages of grief. But what they don't know is that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who created that, mm-hmm. created it for a very specific purpose and a specific set of circumstances, which is how your brain goes through the process of knowing you yourself are dying. Mm. It is not applicable to any other kind of grief. And I feel Uh. like that never gets talked about and is so freeing once you learn it. Because even if you know that's not how it always goes, it's almost an expectation we think Mm -hmm. it should go that way. No. Mm -hmm. If you are on hospice, we can talk about those five things. But otherwise, it is that jumbled ball of lines. Mm-hmm. It is chaos. It is bouncing back and forth between all these different aspects of grief. Mm-hmm. So if anyone wants to talk to me more about that, it's <laughs> my favorite topic. But it's so good. I mean, that's such a good delineation. I don't even think I knew that. I mean, yeah. I, we just kind of, I just draw it a little bit differently. Yeah. With just out of experience and practice. Right. But like, I love knowing that that's more of an internal process. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time, but I'm curious, this is kind of my favorite little wrap up question. I don't know what past version of you, you would speak to, but when thinking of a younger version or previous iteration of yourself, like what would you say to her about flourishing or healing based on what you know about yourself now? I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I want her to know everything. <laughs> and yet I also know that all those things I learned were th- 
through experience. Mm -hmm. I learned the hard way. I always say I'm too stubborn to learn from other people's experience. I just have to go through it. Like I'm an experiential learner. Um, So in some ways, I think I needed to go through things the way I did. But if I could sort of supernaturally give her something, it would be to not fear change. Mm -hmm. That change is not the enemy and that we're actually always changing and that's okay. Because mm-hmm. I think I get wrapped up so much in wanting things to stay the same, wanting to freeze them yeah. as they are. Like, yeah. I like the good parts, but there's still something better, right? It might not be exactly the same, but it's better in different ways or it's fulfilling in different ways. And I think if I had never taken some of those risks, I wouldn't be able to see the positive impact of risk, of vulnerability, of stepping out into something that I'm just never comfortable with. I hate change. I don't, <laughs> I don't welcome it normally. Um, but I think there's now this conversation inside me of, yes, but this could be really good. Yeah. Right. And so being able to balance that out, right. It's okay to stay. It's okay to move. It's, it's just the wisdom to know when to do what. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of that hall, I mean, so much of this conversation really circles back to that truth of it's so important to keep building that awareness of what's happening inside of you Mm -hmm. like building the communication between your gut and your brain yes your heart and your brain like intrapersonal yeah intrapersonal attachment because you can't move towards the healthy things without knowing what is good for you I love that. Thank you for your time. You're so welcome. It's so lovely to talk to you. Yeah, this was great. This is fun. I will post in the little notes some of the books you recommended, and Gina's going to be doing some coaching and counseling. Yeah. Potentially. So maybe we'll we'll shout her out too, so (laughs) that if you want to talk to her, you can. Yeah. Um, But yeah, thank you so much. You're so welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me.